Um, <clears throat> some, some large news that has happened um, this past week. We didn't address it last week, but uh, we want take, to take time today to talk about uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We as elders took time this week to talk about um, how we as a church are, ought to think about these kinds of things. And we have taken time over the past few years to uh, pray for large things that have taken place in our country. When there has been disaster, we have, we have chosen to, as a congregation, take time to pray for those situations. When there has been large um, invasions of countries, when there has been great illness in the world, we have chosen to, as a congregation, come together to bring those requests and supplications before the Lord. And we felt that it was proper and right that we not only come to the Lord as a congregation in those times when we have reason to pray and ask the Lord for help, and when we have reason to, uh, to mourn uh, or to be sad and to cry for him for help, that is appropriate. But also, we believe that as a congregation, it is good for us to celebrate when the Lord has moved in a mighty way, in a good way in the culture, uh, in a way that is, is, carries the weight that the decision this past week, last week, carries. It is no secret, if you have read our position papers on abortion, you'll know that we are a church that believes strongly in the sanctity of life, including the unborn. And so the decision that was handed down from the Supreme Court last week to overturn Roe versus Wade is something that we, as those who celebrate life and recognize every single life as worthy of life, as worthy of protection, as, as an image bearer of God, we can celebrate as a church that the, the ruling that has stood for almost 50 years that has barred and not allowed states to put any, any limitation on the murder of the unborn has now been removed. And it is our prayer and our hope that because of that, lives will be saved going forward from this place. We recognize that uh, this does not mean that there is no longer evil in the world. We recognize that the, does, this does not mean that the situation is settled and there are not other complications or there is not still um, death and evil that occurs uh, and suffering that occurs either from uh, an unborn life that is taken or from a woman who is in suffering. And we, we have no desire to act like that is all cured. But because we celebrate life when we recognize that every single human being is worthy of life as being made in the image of God, we can celebrate today what has taken place in our country over the past week and a half. And I would encourage you going forward, over the next week, over the next month, I feel like this is not something that is going to go away as a talking point anytime soon. As followers of Christ, this is for us an opportunity to glorify God in the sanctity of life, to tell people why it is that we believe life is worthy of protection, why it is we believe that even unborn lives are worthy to be preserved it is not because we just decided that, but it's because God has created us as human beings, his special creation, unique among all creation, as his image bearers. And we have opportunities now, uh, more than ever, to declare that to the world around us. And so I'm going to take time right here, right now, and pray, and praise God for this ruling that was handed down, and pray that the Lord would give us opportunities going forward to continue to declare to the world the sanctity of every single human being as an image bearer of God. If you would bow your heads and pray with me. 
Lord God, we come today as a church, as one body, as a congregation, and Lord, we thank you and praise you for this thing that has happened. Lord, this is a good that has happened. This is a sign of common grace that you have ruled in this way, that you have um, moved the Supreme Court to make the decision that they have made, Lord, to remove this protection on the destruction of life. Now, Lord, we ask that because of this, unborn lives would be preserved. And Lord, we ask that they would be preserved to your glory. For indeed, Lord, you are on the side of life. Lord, I pray that we as believers uh, would not only celebrate this, Lord, but that we would go forward from this place in a way that is ready to talk about the gospel, in a way that is ready to declare why this matters, in a way that is ready to step in and help to defend life, Lord, in a way that is ready to step in and take on the weight of life, Lord, at every stage, at every phase. Lord, may we be a people that glorify you in our words and in our actions and praise you for your goodness. Lord, nothing in this world happens that is outside of your control. And Lord, may we not only cry to you when bad things happen, but praise you when they do, when good things happen. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We come now in Hebrews to chapter 6. If you remember from last week, uh, we began last week a sort of aside, if you will. Hebrews chapter 5 is, uh, is where we begin to see the author of Hebrews, really in the end of chapter 4, diving into this discussion on the priesthood of Christ. And in chapter 5, he introduces us to his priesthood as it is compared to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And as I said, that is a discussion that will go on all the way through chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. But last week we saw that the author of Hebrews, as the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write, chose to stop this discussion of the priesthood of Christ and take time, an aside, if you will, to declare to the Hebrews, to warn them, to caution them against a danger that he sees, that he has identified among the church. And so we see him building on this danger, building on this warning to the church here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We find this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we come to this passage that we recognize can be exceedingly difficult. Lord, I recognize that as I stand here prepared to preach this text, Lord, I stand asking for your help, and for your grace, and for the Holy Spirit to work through this word. Lord, may the word of God work as it is powerful, as it is active and moving, and may it do so in spite of a sinful vessel who stands up here to proclaim it. We ask for your grace today and our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So my title for our sermon today is Don't Loiter in the Hallway. And I've taken this title, chosen this as my title, and I'm going to attempt to, um, in a very loose manner, borrow from one C.S. Lewis. If you have read the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. It is a very good read uh, for every Christian. If you have read it and you've read the, the introduction, you'll know that in his introduction... He discusses the purpose of the book, and the purpose of his book, Mere Christianity, as he describes, is not to uh, insist people into a specific denomination, into specific details of doctrine, into specific kinds of theology within Christianity. He describes those as various rooms of Christianity, and he says that Mere Christianity, his book, if you will, is intended simply to get you into the hallway, into the entryway of Christianity inside to where you understand this is Christianity. From there, he says, it is up to you to select which door you would choose to go into. And um, certainly there are limitations with his illustration. There are maybe some problems that some of us might identify. But as we read our text today, I think you'll see how we can take that idea of a entryway into the gospel and use it for our purposes today, for our text today addresses a very specific issue of apostasy, of those, as the text says, who have fallen away. This is a phrase that maybe scares a lot of us, maybe concerns us, maybe something that causes us great confusion, and my hope today is that we can wade through some of that confusion and see clearly For I would borrow C.S. Lewis's hallway illustration and say that our text today is largely addressed to people who have maybe entered into the entryway of Christianity, the entryway of the gospel. They have not yet fully entered into the gospel. They have not yet fully believed it, but they have been entered into it. Perhaps they are familiar with the church. They are familiar with the tenets of the gospel. They are familiar with the information and have an understanding. They are right now in the entryway faced with the decision. Am I going to enter into this house and enjoy the rest and enjoy the comfort and enjoy the fireplace that is found in this house and the refuge that it can be for me? Or am I going to remain here in the hallway? Or am I going to walk back out of the house? It is my goal today to encourage you, specifically those of you who perhaps would classify yourself in this way, or maybe you wouldn't know that you're this way, but hopefully it will be revealed to you through the sermon, that you are now standing in the hallway, that you have heard and understood the things of the gospel and yet have still 
hesitated to enter into the rest and the peace and the comfort and the truth that it is, but are still faced with the decision of whether or not to enter in fully or to reject it outright. I want to break down our text today into three sections, and hopefully it will help us to understand the text more clearly. Our first section is verses one through three, and for this point, I've titled it, Leaving the Shadow for the Substance. In verse one of Hebrews six, we read this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let's start with this word, therefore. For as you know, you cannot see and read this word, therefore, without looking back and trying to understand what came before. This is an indication that, our, that the author here, the Holy Spirit, is building upon something that has already been said, something that has already been set. He's saying, in light of that, because of what I've already established, now this. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. This word, therefore, connects us to our previous passage that we looked at last week. If you remember last week, we talked about spiritual milk versus solid food. And when we begin to think about what we said last week, it will help us to understand this text today more clearly. Last week, we talked about the spiritual milk that the, that the church here, that many there in the church that the author is writing to, have never fully grasped have never fully uh, taken and, and eaten and let it have its effect so that they still continue to need milk. If you remember from last week, the point I made was not that spiritual milk is bad and that solid food is good. The point that the author was making in last week's passage was not that one is bad, one is good. You need solid food, spiritual milk is bad. But as we said last week, the point is that spiritual milk, when it is taking its effect, when it is being taken in, when it is being digested, will lead to maturity and grow you into needing and desiring and feasting on spiritual food. So we see that the milk is good, but that the problem was that the milk was not being used the way it needed. The milk was not going where it needed to go and therefore was not being allowed to take effect. In the same way now as we come to our text today, I would suggest that the Holy Spirit here in verse one, the first half of verse one, when he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, that he's not suggesting here that we abandon or that we leave or forsake the basic principles of the gospel. I think that would be a bad message. If we understood the author of Hebrews here to say, those basic things of the gospel, leave those behind. I think that would be a bad understanding of this text and could lead to all kinds of problems, especially as we seek to interpret and apply the rest of the text before us. Instead, I would suggest that what he is calling his readers to is to leave something that is of lesser value than the gospel, something that if clung to will never lead to maturity and to salvation. He is saying, let go of those things which will not mature you, which he here deems the elementary doctrine of Christ, of the Messiah. And he says, go on to maturity, to the things that will lead to maturity. Specifically, I believe that a proper interpretation of this text would lead us to see that the author here is talking about Judaism. 
that when he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he is saying, leave behind Judaism. And this makes perfect sense in the context of the whole letter. Is that not largely what the author has been doing this whole time? Demonstrating that Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant? That the foundation that has been laid in Judaism in the Old Testament has found its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the new and better mediator of the new and better covenant? We've seen already how he is better than angels. He is better than Adam. He is better than Moses. He is better than... Aaron, he is the better priest, he is the better prophet, he is the better king. Christ is the fulfillment of Judaism. Christ himself says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This helps us understand our text here before us today. Let me show you what I mean. In our text we read, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This gets at the title of our bullet point here in point one. It gets at the very heart of the argument being made in the whole book of Hebrews that Jesus is the substance of the things foreshadowed in Judaism. Judaism laid the foundation but could offer no refuge apart from its completion or its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So to turn back then at this point, now that Christ has come, now that the the covenant has been fulfilled and the new covenant has been instituted, to turn back to the old covenant of Judaism was to abandon the structure, was to abandon the house and be left without refuge, without hope, without protection. We keep reading after we see here, he says, laying not a foundation. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, you might read this understandably and think that this is referring to Christianity. And let me just be perfectly transparent with you. There are many commentators who have done that, many theologians who have done that, who have said this is talking about the basic principles of the gospel. And respectfully, I would disagree with that interpretation that those certain commentators, certain pastors, certain theologians would make. I would argue that this is not a reference to the elementary principles of the gospel, but in fact, these things that are referenced here are features of Judaism and ought to be understood as such. He says, repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Remember, these are the things he is calling us to move away from, not laying again a foundation. In the Old Testament, these things, repentance from dead works, those those things that are separate from God and turning toward Yahweh and, and as one nation, one people, having faith toward God. This is all good, but it is the Old Testament shadow. Repentance from sin and unto life, as described in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, and faith in Jesus, not merely faith toward God, are the substance that that shadow is pointing to. 
This is also could be understood when Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 and says, of the Jews, they have a zeal for God. Well, a zeal for God is good, right? We would think that to be right and proper, and yet Paul is writing to them to say, you have a zeal for God, yet without knowledge. You are lacking. You are remaining in your Judaism, and in doing so, forsaking the gospel, the fulfillment of all that you believe. When he says of instructions about washing and laying on of hands, some of your Bibles might even say here instructions about baptisms, but baptisms here, washings here, and the laying on of hands is not intended to be a reference to the baptism that we recognize in Christ Jesus or the laying on of hands that you might understand to be whenever someone is ordained to gospel ministry or someone who is healed as in the book of James. But rather, what this is most likely a reference to is what we see in Leviticus. When, when Aaron is commanded both to wash himself, to cleanse himself, this ritual cleansing before making sacrifice, and then the laying on of hands is most likely a reference to the laying on of hands on the goat that was then to bear the sin of the people. And we begin to see then that this is the Old Testament shadow of the purifying blood of the lamb that washes white as snow, which is the substance. The third thing he says here, the resurrection of, dead, of the dead and eternal life. Again, this ought to be understood as the Old Testament shadow with the resurrection from, from the dead, not of the dead simply, but from the dead, both spiritual and physical death in Christ is the substance. All of these things that we have read, we read and go, those sound like good things. And they are when understood properly in light of the fulfillment of those things, in light of the substance to which those things are the shadow. So the point of these verses here is not to just encourage immature believers to become mature, to forsake the elementary principles of the gospel, for we are never to forsake those things. We are never to move past those things and leave them behind and abandon them. The point here is to encourage those who are now on the fence, who are teetering between embracing and trusting in Christ or turning back to their former religion, the one they know and are familiar with. That is who the author is addressing here. He is encouraging them, lay aside Judaism, this old system, the shadow, and embrace Jesus Christ, the substance. And by doing this, you will be moved to maturity. But if you continue and turn back to your Judaism, maturity is not the end for you, but something else as we will see. He includes, or he concludes this section of verses in verse three by saying, and this we will do if God permits. And I love this statement that the author is making because this statement has, has two things about it that I find to be very encouraging and right and appropriate for the writer to say. It has the sense of certainty about what takes place in the life of believers, he says, and this we will do. The moving on to maturity, the laying on the old things, the shadows, the former things, and moving on to the substance, which is Christ, and thereby 
coming into maturity. These things we will do. He doesn't say maybe we'll do them if the Lord permits or well, I hope we will do them. He says if the Lord permits, we will do these things for there is no other path for the believer. There is no option for the believer to continue on in their immaturity. For those who are actually taking in the milk of the gospel will be growing, will be nourished, will be moving towards maturity and ready to take on the solid food. And I recognize that in many cases, this is a slow process. There may be some of you in here who are saying, I wish I was ready for more solid food. And let me encourage you, I know that sometimes that is a slow process. But I want to encourage every one of you in here who has been a believer for longer than, than a couple years to look back over your life, to consider, am I the same person I was when Christ first saved me? I think for most of us in here, if we are truly followers of Christ, the answer is yes. I am not the same person I was. Maybe I haven't been changed dramatically in one big turn, one life-changing moment like Paul on the road to Damascus, but we can see how our life has been matured point by point movement by movement into where we are at today. And I would encourage you, if you look back over your Christian life of multiple years and you say, I haven't changed a bit, then I would encourage you to consider yourself. I would encourage you to listen carefully to the warning that the rest of this passage offers. But he goes on to say, this we will do if God permits this passage also holds up the sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation, which is often put down as, a, as a, 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 a bad doctrine because it means that man has no responsibility. And quite the contrary, the Bible never exalts men of responsibility. But what saying God is sovereign in salvation does do is that it removes us from the responsibility of saving ourselves and say God is the one who saves it is good news to say God is sovereign in salvation. Because if God is not sovereign in salvation, then we have no hope. Because our hope is placed in something else. And there is no hope to be found outside of God and his goodness and in his grace and in his unchanging nature. Finally, point number two, we come to this section that is one of the most difficult sections that you can come to, I think, um, as a Christian to understand. Verses four through six says this in Hebrews six. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The Holy Spirit here in Hebrews chapter 6 is giving us a very real and serious warning. A very real and serious warning of a very real danger that we ought to be aware of. That he recognizes his readers need to hear. The question then that we need to ask is, who is this warning for? There are some that would suggest different options for who is the subject being discussed here? Who is it that the author of Hebrews is seeking to warn of this kind of apostasy? There are some who would say that this warning is for Christians, for Christians who 
can and will and, and may fall away from Christ, from the salvation in which they now stand. Certainly at first reading of this passage, we could see how someone would draw those conclusions. I mean, listen to the language. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've been enlightened. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. We hear these things and we think, man, it sounds kind of like a Christian. And the question has to be asked then, can Christians lose their salvation? Are Christians who are truly in Christ, who have truly been united to him by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, are we at risk of losing this salvation? The problem comes, though, with this understanding when you consider this passage in light of the whole scripture. That is what good Bible interpretation requires. We cannot interpret Scripture, a single passage on its own, separate from the rest of Scripture. We must always interpret the Bible by comparing it to itself. Some have said it this way, that Scripture interprets Scripture, or Scripture interprets itself. When we come to a passage like this and we read it and we say, man, this sounds a lot like the Bible is saying this. We need to go to other passages in the scripture where the same kinds of topics are being addressed. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that here, here, here? And when we take all of that in aggregate and recognize that the, whole, that, uh, the Bible as written and divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit does not contradict itself, then when we come to a passage like we have before us today and say, this sounds like Christians can lose their salvation. And then we come to passages like Romans chapter 8, or John 10, 28, or Philippians 1, 6, that he who is faithful, who began a good work in you, will see it to completion. We see these passages encouraging us that in Christ we are safe, that he is the good shepherd, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And we compare that to our passage today, then we see one of these passages we are understanding wrongly. If we think that this one says a Christian can lose his salvation, and this one says... A Christian cannot. So then we need to say, what have we gotten wrong? We see that this, that this passage then, in light of all of the testimony of Scripture, cannot be saying that a Christian can lose their salvation. It is not saying that believers have no reason to find security and assurance in Christ. In addition to the lack of support for this understanding throughout the rest of scripture, I would also point us to the language of the passage. The language that the passage uses points us to the concept that this is not discussing believers. I would point out a few various things that are lacking in the text, namely, any sort of salvation language. The Bible says of those who have been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Notice we see nothing in there of a discussion on new birth. We see nothing in there on a dis- of a discussion on justification or sanctification. We see nothing in there on the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit mentioned, but not in that way. So then, since we know that this passage is not in reference to true believers, and we know this in light of what the rest of Scripture has declared to us, then who is in view here? 
Well, the text tells us who's in view here. Those who have been enlightened. In other words, those who have uh, not been born again. Not those who have been born again. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Not those who are feasting on Christ, as Christians do. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Not those who have been born of the Spirit and are indwelt by the Spirit. Those who have tasted of the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come, not those who are being sustained by it. That is who is in view here. Not true believers, but those who have simply stood in the hallway. I would then return us to our example that I gave at the start. That I believe these are the people addressed in this passage. Those who have entered into the hall or into the entryway and are now loitering there are loitering there, being introduced to the gospel, being introduced and brought to a sort of moral ascent, a, 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 an understanding, the head knowledge of what the gospel is, what it means, and yet have never truly entered into the house, have never truly entered into the refuge that is found there. The Holy Spirit has in view here those who have a great deal of exposure to the gospel, into the doctrines of Christ, and yet have never entered into his rest. Those who hear the good news of Christ, understand it, see the goodness and the benefits of it, and yet turn away from it and leave out the door. It is of these people that the Holy Spirit gives such a severe warning, and it is a severe warning. Notice what he says of these people. He says, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is the danger of apostasy. According to the scriptures, this is a real danger of one who has come to such an intimate knowledge of God and of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, has learned and understood what is at stake and what Jesus has offered and who ultimately rejects it for lesser things. And eventually this will lead to a hardening of the heart that salvation no longer remains for them. That is what our text says. It says that it is impossible then to restore them to repentance. It's as Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 26 through 29, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? This is those who have rejected Christ, who have heard the good news of Christ, who have come to an understanding of it, perhaps even those who have sat in church pews for most or all of their life and ultimately have never entered into in Christ, but in fact rejected him. And as chapter 10 tells us, outraged the spirit of grace, trampled underfoot the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 6, our passage today will tell us that it is so great that they, that it is impossible to restore them again to salvation. 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is no minor issue. One that should grab our attention of of all who are hesitant to enter into the rest that Christ offers, to enter into his salvation, to not just hear the gospel and think it sounds good, but to place their trust in it and to lean into it. Remember that the author here is writing to a church, recognizing full well that there are those in the church who right now are in this place. And if it is a warning to the church in that day, then it is certainly still a warning to the church today. Point number three, worthless in the end, worthless land and the end thereof. The last two verses of our passage, uh, the author concludes this section with an illustration that makes the point quite clearly, quite graphically. He says, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This kind of agricultural example is not one that is foreign to the scripture. In fact, we see these kinds of examples and illustrations of God's grace of salvation of various different things throughout all of scripture. And when we read this passage, we ought to be reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew of the parable that we mentioned last week, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, who uh, Jesus tells this parable of a sower that goes out and sows seed, and, and the seed lands on all different types of soil. It lands on, on the path that is trodden down. The soil is hard, and, and therefore the seed is never accepted into the soil, and the birds come and eat it. Then other seed lands where there is rocky soil, and, and we remember that the, the seed will take root and will spring up quickly, but because of the rocks, there is the roots are not deep, and therefore the sun withers it, scorches it, and it dies, we see then the, the seed that lands in thorny soil and that although it springs up at first, it is choked out by the concerns and the issues of the world before finally we see that there is seed that lands on good soil and not only takes root and grows but bears fruit. That is those who are truly in Christ Jesus. Jesus goes on to explain the parable to his disciples and And we see in the second two groups of seed an illustration that I think is uh, flushed out and applied in our passage today. He says, as for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What's interesting about this passage is that in two of these four cases, the word takes root, and it appears that things are going well, and and a plant is born, and a shoot sprouts, and perhaps even green leaves arise on this plant that has grown. And yet, over time, what we ultimately see is that even though it appeared that the word had taken root, taken hold, and produced its intended effect, ultimately what we see is that the soil was no good. 
and that that person was never a believer. And really the Holy Spirit here in Hebrews is just continuing on this parable and describing the ultimate end of this kind of soil as he says its end is to be burned. This is the end of all who appear to believe, all who seem to accept the tenets of Christianity, who seem to accept the gospel as true and yet never rest in it, never embrace it, never truly trust in Jesus Christ, but simply have knowledge and appear to believe their end like this soil is to be burned. Like our sermon last week, we need to understand where the problem lies here. Last week, we established that the problem is not in the milk of the gospel. The milk of the gospel is good. And when it is given in the way that it is intended, it will lead to growth and nourishment. It will have its intended effect so long as it makes its way to where it needs to go. In the same way, here in our passage today, the problem is not with the rain that rains on the field. The problem is with the soil itself. And its end is to be burned because the seed never took hold, it never produced fruit. As we conclude today, there are two points that I want to make from this passage. And the first point that I want to make is that the point of this passage is not to cause doubt and despair in the heart of true believers. I can tell you as a pastor, and I think other pastors and preachers perhaps feel this same way, that this is a text that I, I worry when I preach that as I preach this text, there are going to be true believers in this place that I cause despair, that I cause doubt, that I cause to worry that they are not in Christ or that their salvation is not good. And in a sense, they lack assurance. They fail to trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. And let me encourage you today, if you are here in this place and the basis of your salvation is Christ's finished work, and you are trusting in that, relying on that, resting in that, if you are feasting on him, abiding in his word, then doubt is not something that should come into your mind. For indeed, if you are a believer here in this place today and you have doubt about your salvation, your doubt is a, is a doubt directed at Christ and his goodness and his finished work, which is finished and is good. And so if you are here in this place today and you are truly united to Christ by faith and are trusting in him for your salvation then doubt and despair is not what ought to be brought to you in this passage. And yet, we still have this passage in our text. This passage is still in Scripture and therefore intended to be taught because this is a warning that the Holy Spirit knows that the church needs, not just in the time that it was written, but even today. And therefore, the second point of application would be this, that those of you who are here in this place today who have been loitering in the entryway of salvation and yet never come all the way into the house to enjoy the benefits and the refuge and the rest that is found therein. Let me offer you two things. First is a warning that you are in danger. If you right now are simply have tasted the gospel and say, yeah, I think that might be good, but I don't know that I want all of it. I don't know that I completely accept. I don't know that I want to give up my lifestyle. What I had is is pretty good, then I would encourage you that you are in danger. The entryway is not a place to loiter. Knowledge of the gospel is not all that is required for salvation and for maturity in Christ. 
but taking the gospel, the milk and meat thereof, and taking it in, digesting it, letting it have its full effect. So I would encourage you today that you are in grave danger if you are right now loitering in the entryway of the gospel. And in in addition to that warning, I would offer you an exhortation, a plea, enter into salvation. Enter into Christ. He is the fulfillment of all these things. He is the, the mediator that we need. He is the high priest that we will continue to learn about that is a good and proper high priest who can appropriately mediate for us. He is the only hope of salvation. I would encourage you today, enter into his rest, enter into his salvation so that you might find yourself mature rather than like the bad soil burned up. Let's pray.